He was just about to uh, yeah, land a uh, land a mackerel and this big shark just came out of nowhere and just gave her a big jerk to just cut her open like, you know, like a knife going through butter. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast. I'm John Sussman. Narrow-barred mackerel, known internationally as tanguigi, or often kingfish, but in Australia as Spanish mackerel, inhabit coastal waters from Perth in Western Australia, around the top end, to about Bermagui in southern New South Wales. It's the largest of Australian mackerels, reaching a maximum length of about 2.5 metres and a 70 kilo weight. The upper body varies from bright blue to dark grey in colour that fades to a silvery blue over the sides. More than 40 narrow grey, blue wavy vertical bars are present on each side of the fish. The large dip in the lateral line below the second dorsal fin is a clear diagnostic feature of the narrow barred Spanish mackerel. The regal-looking, fast-swimming Spanish mackerel is one of the fish at the top of the food chain. Its sleek, powerful torso has the look of a fighter jet, built for speed with the persona of an aggressive hunter. It's caught using hook-and-line trolling techniques, and its quality is generally excellent as a result. This, combined with its high oil content, facilitates a vast range of culinary options, from simple preparations to complex Japanese techniques. The thin skin, thick rounded trunk and simple bone structure also offer a broad range of cut options from fillets to cutlets. Spanish mackerel fishes are amongst the most colourful on the Australian waters. Fishing the tropical waters of northern Australia, they spend long stints at sea, often tracking schools of these hardy fish for months on end, spending long hours under the searing sun in humid conditions. Their thirsts are also understandably legendary. Bruce Wildcard Davy is himself a legend. A fiercely proud third generation professional fisher who started his career at 16 years of age in 1975, following his father and mother and grandfather into the world of fishing. His love of fishing, his family and his beloved Spanish mackerel makes him a truly unique character in Australia's fishing history. Good morning, it's uh, Bruce Wildcard calling from Cairns to uh talk to you about our marvellous seafood industry. So my grandfather dabbled in the fishing industry out of Wollongong, Kiama, Sydney in the early days, 40s, 50s. Both uh, grandfather George's sons went fishing, Uncle Keith and my father. And mum and dad ended up uh, building a, a beautiful house down at Groomer Point on the Shellhaven, Crookhaven River. And, you know, surrounded by these wonderful, also generational fishing families like the Innesses, uh, old Bill, Ron Innes, Chris and Ian with the Ajaxes. We had the Gray family, Johnny and Mary Gray with the Anne Marie's and the Shellhaven. And, of course, Peter and Wendy Bell there. So as a young kid growing up with all the other fishing children in what then was essentially a fishing village, 100 miles south of Sydney, supplying uh, you know, local East Coast New South Wales seafood into the Nara Co-op. Uh, it was a wonderful childhood to be surrounded by all these iconic fishing families where you know the whole town would show up to see the boats come in and unload onto the trucks up to Nara and you know, next morning they'd be on the marker floor. So from a very, very young age of 
stood on the decks of all those wonderful boats and I just dreamed from a young age that uh, that's that's my heritage and that's my roots and I'd follow into the fishing industry. In 1974, I left boarding school in Sydney, Newington College, and got a job on a prawn trawler uh, up in Mooloola Bar and then uh, 75, I ended up prawning in the Gulf of Carpentaria for banana prawns and tiger prawns and they really were the heydays of you know, the, the development of our wild capture uh, seafood resources and particularly in the Gulf of Carpentaria, those challenges of the early day companies and those people that used to leave, Mooloola Bar, Ballina, you know, Gold Coast, Bundaberg and travel all the way up the east coast of Queensland do the banana prawn season. They were marvellous early days, John. Fishermen are opportunistic hunters. Often their migratory patterns are as varied as their prey. Building a successful fishing business requires flexibility, mobility, and a natural sense of adventure to relocate from one place to another. Dad had come up in 1969. He'd, um, he'd sold his uh, fish trawler down in, uh, down in Greenwell Point, the Alveda, and uh, he, he did a stint up in the Gulf there with um, CSIRO and Department of Agriculture Primary Industries, and they were really were also the heyday of uh, a past research era where there was a thirst for knowledge for all these, um, you know, seafood resources and uh, the demand to develop them. So Dad did a year up in the uh, in Crumba, tagging prawns and doing all the the research with Syro, and then came back in uh, 1976, literally in the backyard at Nara, built the Crystal Voyager, which was an 86-foot prawn trawler. Uh, got one of the few licences from Canberra where you could walk in and say, I wanted to go prawning in the Gulf of Carpentaria and plonk your $100 down and got a licence before all the restrictions came in. And uh, over the next 12 months, built this fantastic, very modern steel prawn trawler for its, uh, for its age, 86 feet. And uh, with my mum, my sister, my brother-in-law, my cousins and, and uh, Uncle Keith, dad's brother, we spent three years from 77, 76, 79 working that. And then mum had enough after three years and my sister got pregnant. So we sold that and I commenced a, uh, a career of four years working for uh, A. Raptors and Sons, Arthur Raptors, George Raptors and Margaret Raptors in Carumba, and they certainly were the most wonderful years of, uh, you know, there was new technology coming into our fisheries, better engines, support supply networks, you know, from Carumba and, and other areas, Darwin and Weeper. And uh, I had a wonderful career cutting my teeth in the prawning industry up until uh, 1984, Dad and I built another 86-foot prawn trawler for the Gulf. And then uh, with my wife, Juanita, and three young children, we continued the, uh, the, the northern prawn fishery in the Gulf. And then, of course, as many would know, John, there was uh, over 350 licences and vessels, 300 vessels operating in that fishery. and the economics and the sustainability came into question and through a new numerous series of buybacks over many years, as we've seen in most of our fisheries, 
they re- reduced the numbers down to the current 52. And that was quite a painful process for many, uh, particularly the private owners that didn't have the the funds to continue to reinvest in the fishery millions of dollars to buy a licence then. So Dad and I eventually sold out. And that's when I bought the wild card in, um, in 1991. And through the course of my fishing career, I'd seen all these wild mackerel at the back of the boat as we were cleaning the nets out on these reef systems. So it was a natural progression for... Uh, Juanita and I then to go and find a little mackerel boat. We bought a little 50-foot mackerel boat in uh, in Cairns and with three children and a school teacher, we took off to the Gulf and we uh, have had an absolute pleasure in the last 35 years pioneering a large-scale offshore Spanish mackerel fishing. John, and the unique feature of that fishery, you know, they're a beautiful pelagic fish and highly regarded, you know, right around Asia and India and the Pacific and, of course, uh, similar king mackerel, Caravella, Scombomorus calavera in the uh, Gulf of Mexico, very similar to our Spanish mackerel here in Australia. Um, it was just a natural progression to, you know, develop that fishery. Uh, over the next sort of 10 years, so I took that little 50-foot boat, cut it in half, put five metres in the, in the middle, put a metre on either side and turned it into a 22-metre vessel and a home for our family. It was interesting. We never, Juanita and I had never owned a home. So uh, we still had our three young children and the school teacher came with a child as well, a young boy, and so I had four on there. And uh, uh, we further developed out of the Queensland Gulf into the Northern Territory and we've also got East Coast Queensland quota holdings, so we have one of the largest privately owned quota holdings across three separate fisheries now, and we're very proud of how we've uh, developed that fishery, which is notable, John, by the method of capture, Uh, and that is using traditional little five-metre inboard diesel fibreglass mackerel dories where you have one of your crew in there, or myself, Juanita, of course, and you actually go out early in the morning for an hour, hour and a half, and we're simply trolling garfish and um, and spoons, silver spoons, metal jigs, etc. And we actually pull every individual mackerel in by hand. It's it's the ultimate uh, man on fish fishing industry, uh, where you've got to fool that fish to take something artificial and pull it in manually on a long line. And uh, of course, pay the bills at the same time. The, the Gulf of Carpentaria uh, you know, it goes from Cape York, uh, our most northern top tip near Torres Straits, of course. And uh, to our, to the north in the Torres Straits, you have the traditional um, Torres Strait Islander fisheries. And then down the east coast, you have a range of fisheries, obviously, Queensland managed. And then when we get to a gulf, it's a, it's, it's a totally separate fishery for prawns, mud crab, barramundi, king salmon, grey mackerel and Spanish mackerel. So different management plans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, vast area. The Gulf of Carpentaria, the water is about 355,000 square kilometres, equally divided between NT and Queensland, and um, you only have, once you come around 
Cape York. You've only got the bauxite mining town of Weeper as uh, where you can get fuel and unload. Uh, you have numerous uh, Aboriginal communities, Marpoon, Aracoon, Pomparau, Edward River, Ganoona, Normanton, Doomidgee scattered through the Gulf, and they're vital for us because they've all got mobile reception, so if we're close enough, we can... We can link up with the world again because we're quite isolated. Most of the time we don't have any communications other than the satellite phone. Uh, from Weeper, it's about 250 miles down to Corumba, which is our next supply base. And then there's literally nothing till Gove um, in, in northeast Arnhem Land, which is halfway from you know Weeper to Darwin. That's our next service base, but we can't unload there. We can only get fuel two days a week. Other than that, it's Darwin is the only other, you know, infrastructure available to the fishing industry. So very isolated, large, highly undeveloped. You know, there's half a dozen mines scattered around the Gulf, mostly just cattle properties, one big cattle property, you know, basically from the Atherton Tablelines cans right across to the Kimberleys is a series of large um, cattle properties. Very little sealed roads. Uh, you know, I think the, the logistics of keeping food on the wild card and, and all the other fishing vessels, you know, there's quite a process of two weeks before the barge on a certain day, the dry gets delivered, the freezer gets delivered, the chiller gets delivered, the mail and all the spare parts with that vital link. And uh, as I was mentioning, wherever the prawn trawlers and the, the mackerel boats and the barrow boats are, once it comes around into Cape York into that vast area and starts unloading all the vessels, so in many ways, the whole Gulf is, uh, it's as pristine and as beautiful as, uh, as yeah, from time immemorial, it really is. It's, it's a wild area. It's known for its gales and storms and cyclones. That's challenging. Uh, we just love it out there, you know, to wake up every morning and watch the sun rise from the east out of the ocean and then, you know, spend the day fishing, pulling in mackerel, and then uh, that pleasure in the afternoon of a wonderful day's fishing and the snaps are full and everyone's safe. And, uh, watching the sun go down in the evening. Ah, oh, look, oh, oh, there's nary a day, John, where I just don't think I'm the luckiest man and the wildcar family is the luckiest fishing family in Australia, and it certainly is. After so many years in a single fishery, a routine can ensure both efficiency and consistency of an operation. It doesn't take away the long hours in trying, often dangerous conditions and the need for good luck and chance. Typical day for us, uh, we, we commence our season uh, around, you know, all tightly restricted with quotas now or tightly held to. And uh, a typical day uh, for the wild card is uh, we, we operate a unique feature of the, of the fishing, uh, of the Spanish mackerel fishery, is uh, scattered right through the Gulf, similar to up the east coast of Queensland, a whole series of underwater mountain chains and shoals and large reef systems. And winter, around July, the Spanish mackerel come into the Gulf uh, they return to 
the sea mount that they were spawned on, you know, two, three years earlier as mature 10 kilo fish. And for a typical day like us, it's up at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, quick cup of coffee, chat around our tackle box meeting, all our safety stuff today we do. Uh, into the freezer gear, down into the minus 42 20 ton freezer where the snaps are and uh, in the snap freezer will be the catch from the day before in 12 kilo cartons or snap frozen. They were removed out of the snap, uh, stack them in the hole, back out, start the main engine, check the oils etc, anchor up and then I've got five dories on a long rope behind the wild card so we back up with our bait buckets, buckets, the five people jump into the first dory. That dory then goes and puts each person into their dory and then they disconnect, fire up their little 30 horsepower engine, get their reels out, turn the electronics on and then uh, they go over to the shoal and we start searching for large schools of Spanish mackerel. Now scattered on a hill might be 10, 12, 16 huge schools of Spanish mackerel with, you know, 5,000 fish, 1,000 fish, 10,000 fish and the tricks for each dory to go and locate its own school and simply a matter of going over the school. The mackerel take the take the lure or the garfish. You have a foot tiller in the dory that you tap over and next minute you're just circling around, pulling mackerel in one at a time. We usually do about an hour. Every fish that uh, comes into the vessel is immediately icky-jimmied. <laughs> And there's quite some ethics around how, in this case, seafood is handled today. And we all know that the dicky jimming a tuna or a swordfish, etc., barramundi, uh, is traditionally about enhancing the quality. And that is shutting down the nervous system in, of the mackerel. And uh, that then stops you know, the fish feeling pain. So there's also the ethics of how we handle seafood today. And this is increasingly important when we talk about community licence and expectations today that we're humanely, you know, capturing and, and treating our fish. So once we've got uh, a fish on, two fish on our lines, we've only got two lines off each dory, uh, you know, you manually pull that 60-foot line into the vessel there's no mechanics or winches or anything and uh, it, it just slides over the gunnel where you're uh, with the with the lure in its mouth so you grab it in the gills uh, remove the lure return that to the water fishing again and then we go through you know with all this uh, uh, you know the how we treat the fish today is so important you know the community has an expectation that we're we're humanely and ethically harvesting and, and treating the seafood similar as what farmers are seeing with live cattle there so it comes over we immediately grab it and we with an icky jimmy tool we immediately stab it in a brain you know literally within five seconds of coming out of the water so then the the fish is is brain dead and then we start unloading the mackerel out of the dories into the stern section and then they're immediately placed into um, large, you know, four-tonne brine tanks that are chilled down to one, two, three degrees and that immediately brings that core temperature of that. Uh, you know, some of these fish are well over 30 kilos. They're huge fish. You need two people to get them out of the dory. So it's 
important with our, uh, our quality control that those fish are then immediately immersed in a circulating brine. That brings that core temperature down and then you can hold them in the brine for, you know, up to a day. Uh, and then the processing system starts and that in itself is so unique, you know, having those skills passed down by granddad and dad and Uncle Bill and Uncle Keith over the years of how to process a mac mackerel because we're trying to optimise, obviously, what we remove from the frame. And uh, we take the two flitches off port and starboard. There's then a bloodline that runs from the tail down to... Uh, to the uh, the head of the fillet, we remove the bloodline out, so you now have a boneless uh, pieces of mackerel. The skin remains on, both for identification, and it's easier for the processors to to um, portion the mackerel with the skin on into a uh, twelve kilo box, and then uh, down into the snap freezers, where it takes about eight hours to bring them down to, you know, minus 25, minus 30, and then they're held in the store store in the hold. And every month we return to Carumba or the mothership to unload that uh, product to send on its way to market. Even though family businesses can often demand more of workers than laws or even ethics might demand, it's vital for the stability and longevity of a family fishing business that both conditions, remuneration and opportunity are provided in equal measures. The Davy family spend many months at sea together. It's an imperative that they can enjoy their time both on and off the water. You know, when Nita and I uh, have always had the view that uh, you know, working remotely like we do, uh, away for you know, months and months of the year, you know, to get, get people to, to leave their families or, or, you know, the sacrifices all these crews make to go away to these remote fisheries in remote regions, live with a couple of old faggies like me and Juanita, uh, you need to offer, like, really good crew conditions. So all our cabins, so all the crew's cabins have en suites. They've got a queen-size bed, they've got a table. They've got their own private space because I actually employ five women. Uh, on on the, on wildcard, and um, we've also you know paid our crew very well and been very honest with them. You know we we attract top market prices every year because importantly, crew aren't coming away for the love of the, the you now they all love fishing, but at the end of the day, there's the economic reality is you know am I going to earn a thousand dollars a week, two thousand dollars a week, or five hundred? Well. You know, so we've paid our crew well. So I'm very proud to say, um, you know, young Tom is just doing his 15th consecutive mackerel season with Juanita and I on Wildcard. And uh, his wife, Jess, is just doing her fifth season. And my son, Tiger, is doing his 13th consecutive year. And his wife, Prue, doing her, I think it's her seventh year this season and, and Tiger and Tom have their, uh, sorry, Tiger and Prue have their two-year-old daughter on the boat well, following in the tradition of Juanita and I raising our children on their on wildcard. And we also have J young JD on there as well, who's uh, doing her fourth year. And uh, it just gives me so much pleasure seeing these young kids because it's, you know, fishing's very instinctive, you know. It's an art form 
passed down from time immemorial. You know, we're all basically hunters and gatherers going back through the eons of time. And uh, it's interesting that really in the scheme of things, mackerel fishing hasn't really changed very much. It's, it's a little boat trolling a little line, pulling in a fish, and then taking it to the community. So the technology, obviously, with like electronics and that, that's that's uh, improved dramatically, as has the engineering with our engines. But the shape of the dory, uh, uh, the lines, the hooks, the lures, they have been the benchmark of, of, of the Spanish mackerel fishery and, of course, the tuna fishery as well, and that have changed very, very little over time. So it's very uh, an old-style fishery, highly manual, highly physical, and it's for me it's a, the real thrill of the hunt, you know, like a, you set a trap or tow a net, uh, and, I, and I'm certainly not... Uh, saying they're uh, any lesser of a fishing way, but actually going out and finding the school of fish by yourself in a dory, getting onto the school, getting the fish to bite, and then that thrill, that adrenaline of pulling every fish in one at a time, boom over the side, stacking them up, and uh, that, oh, look, I, I... I get a little stiffy every time I jump in a dory. I just think I'm the luckiest man alive. I really am, you know. There is something really special about wild-caught seafood. It's one of the last forms of protein that is still wild-caught, and it's a vital part of the food supply chain. More recently, the first world has awakened to the need to celebrate just how special both wild-caught seafood is, and indeed, the fishers who catch it. Look, they're, they're vital. Look, I, I'm saddened to see all these little, you know, the Gippsland, Port Phillip Bay, what's happening in New South Wales, etc. We won't get too deep into the politics. It's, it's sad to see these old generational fisheries, be they net fisheries, you know, coastal, estuary, river net fisheries disappear. It just is the case today, just like here in Cairns, we had sugarcane farms and uh, in the city up until 15 years ago and where I grew up at Groomal Point, you know, all surrounded by dairy farms in our suburban, urban development today. And it is the case that the community doesn't want to see commercial fishing in uh, professional fishing in close vicinity to the population areas. I think that's an absolute tragedy myself. We should be actually celebrating these these, these, these inshore community fisheries and we should be heritage listing them like they have in numerous fisheries overseas and saying, no, we're proud of our fishermen, we're proud of our fishing industries, we're proud that they supply us local seafood straight into our local retailers and uh, and ensuring that they continue uh, because wild, look, traditionally people want to eat wild, I think in a generation or two, uh, with a government focus on expanding aquaculture, you know, tr- mostly domestically here. Um, in another generation or two, our grandkids will be eating farm barramundi and they won't even really know. And, of course, the other issue with wild caught, big issue, is the cost of wild caught seafood now as we've got 
less professional fishermen in the industry. Remembering 25 years ago, we had over 100,000 professional fishermen in Australia. We're down to, I think it's less than 6,000 in the wild caught sector now. That trend will continue to decline. Um, kids will prefer to go off to university, do a double diploma in flower arranging and origami rather than follow into the family footsteps like my children have done. That's sad. Uh, and those skills that have been passed down, you know, just surviving remotely out in, a, in, in, say, the Gulf in our case where, you know, there's seven of us on a little 22-metre boat living in close confines, uh, having all that food, water, fuel, rain, you know, doing all your um, your office work is is the challenge remotely with no in, in, uh, internet, etc. So I think what will happen, John, is there will be key families like the wildcard family that are fortunate the children are followed on that will continue and they'll set the benchmark for for you know continuing to produce quality seafood the demand is 10 times outstrips the supply uh you know there was over 2,000 mackerel dories on the east coast of queensland 25 years ago i doubt whether there's 10 left i think there's only five seven mackerel dories left maybe eight dories left in the gulf of carpentaria there used to be 50 60 back in the day and as we talked about, getting the crew to come out and, um, you know, wanting to stay at sea and work pretty well every day of the week, month, for four, five, six months, that's more difficult. So uh, I can just continue to see the decline and, and continue to see the escalating cost where, you know, for a family to five to go down to Kansas and buy five pieces of wild card mackerel now, about twelve dollars, crumb battered or fried. They're seventy bucks. Throw in, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen bucks chips, some drinks. You're looking at a family Friday fish and chips, hundred dollars on the Esplanade. That's becoming increasing unaffordable. And as we're seeing with prawns and uh, numerous other top end seafood, it's becoming solely the domain domain of the wealthy elite. They are the only ones that are able to fight, go and pay. You know. $25 for a prawn cocktail, John. Fishing in remote locations demands long spells at sea, with fishermen often relying on third-party supply just to keep out on the water. The importance of a fishing port like Cairns can't be understated. We've actually cut back on our Spanish mackerel now. We just do the four peak months of July, August, September, October. That's why the motherships are running with the prawn season. So we go out, we'd basically do like literally that whole four months at sea. We duck in occasionally for a few days uh, into Corumba if we're fishing in that area. Uh, another feature of the Gulf is there's very few ports and infrastructure and wharfage and transport logistics. Uh, you know, there's a bit of weeper, Corumba uh, intermittently. Once you head over to Northern Territory, Groot Island, Gove, there's nowhere to unload and refuel other than Darwin. So that makes it very difficult and also makes it vital that we're able to liaise with these motherships that leave cans every month. And these motherships are huge. You know, they've got three million litres of fuel, million litres of water. 
and they cart, you know, the cartons, the ice, the food, the spare parts, the mail, the oil. They bring everything up for the northern prawn fishery, you know, 50 boats, the barramundi fishery, um, the mackerel fishery and the cab industry. So over that next sort of several weeks, the mothership will meet all the various vessels in numerous locations from Cape York to, uh, to Nullumboy and then return back to go uh, back to cans you know empty of fuel empty of water and about 30 million dollars of of wild caught australian seafood uh, which are unloaded in cans and then palletized through one of the uh, freezer processing facilities here in portsmouth and then of course they're then consigned by the pallet generally a ton off to our numerous buyers it all ends up in cans uh, so Cairns got a population of about 120,000. You know, on an average year, we do, our, say, 60 tonne in that four months. So that's around 750,000, three-quarter of a million individual serves of um, wildcard Spanish mackerel. And literally, for the most part, it hits cans from the mothership, gets palletized into the freezer, and next day gets consigned to the buyers. And uh, there, there's a high and increasingly increasing demand for wildcard, uh, well, not just wildcard, for wild caught Spanish mackerel. So uh, it's literally mostly consumed here in, in, in cans, John. And, and I should, uh, for some of your listeners, I should just um, clarify it doesn't go into tin cans, it goes into the city of cans. <laughs> For most people, going to work doesn't include the prospect of facing a man-eating animal. For wildcard Davy and his crew, massive sharks are just another day at the office. You know, we've seen numerous restrictions come into our shark fisheries, not just across Top End Australia. It's made it all difficult for those operators to continue with all the legislation and um, legal requirements of of, of shark fishing so literally we do not have many shark fishermen left like gill netting is banned in western australia highly restricted and uh, very small quotas in northern territory and queensland so what's happened is we've had a proliferation of sharks you know they've just absolutely bounced back which is wonderful to see because they're also a feature of our tourism business when people see 30 40 sharks swimming at the back of the wild card it's like having nature's own aquarium out there it's really beautiful so uh, nature pretty well like us you know has the ability to evolve over time and just like a lion wanting to catch an antelope doesn't want to run 30 k's around the savannah pant puffing and pan it just wants to leap out behind a tree jump on an antelope and take it home and eat it so the fish have evolved, particularly in the last five and ten years, to know that when a mackerel jumps onto a lure, it's restricted in its ability to manoeuvre and evade being eaten by a shark. So at any one time, there'll be 30 sharks sitting at the back of our lines while we're trolling, doing four knots, and boom, two mackerel jump on, and next minute we've got 30 sharks. So we're losing around you know, $40,000, $50,000 a year 
of mackerel now in certain places to Spanish mackerel. And it's a real challenge, John. There's, uh, there's obviously the safety aspect of that there. And Juanita's had, a, not just Juanita, we've had some serious injuries on the vessel from a shark taking a mackerel when it's been pulled in. There is a harsh reality of injury when fishing in the Gulf of Carpentaria. In such a remote and desolate location, any injury can mean trouble. A shark attack can have devastating consequences. Yeah, we all keep an eye on each other. When the five dories are out, we're all keeping an eye on each other. Of course, wild cars never far away as well. So, yeah, it's just a normal day's fishing up at what we call Cape Carnage, which is um, right up at the you know, third highest point of Australia, straight west of Cape York. and pulling in a mackerel and a, a huge shark just came at the back of the boat. Uh, when you're pulling the lines and you wrap the wire with your hand once and it's just a simple twist, untwist, twist, untwist into the boat, boom. And she was just about to uh, yeah, land, a, uh, land a mackerel and this big shark just came out of nowhere and just literally grabbed the whole shark um, and gave her a big jerk. It broke her hand in about five places, smashed her thumb, her knuckles, her bone, all but severed her little finger off uh, off her hand and then it uh, quartz-whited around behind her knuckles. It just cut her open like, you know, like a knife going through butter. And suddenly we had this emergency situation and, you know, this is important with all your, your safety management systems and your training and everything with um, you know, being remote and, you know, sometimes life and death situations, and we've been involved in those situations with other vessels as well, we were able to contact Care Flight in Darwin and they dispatched the helicopter from Darwin in literally an hour. And uh, I think it was like a 1,600-kilometre round trip from Darwin, refuel at Manangrita, refuel at Elko Island, out to Cape Carnage. We were uh, sitting on the beach waiting. Chopper landed, picked Juanita up, immediately sedated her and assessed her and dealt with her injuries. We were very serious. And she was back in Royal Darwin Hospital literally two and a half hours later and then went underwent microsurgery for the next two days. Stitched a finger back on. They put plates and pins and uh, all these gauzes and stitched her back together. And she was about four months out of action. She's incredibly, well, she's not only an inspirational woman and a, and a tough lady. Um, you know, she just took it in a stride. She repaired herself and she's now back in a dory again. She has a bit of a fear of sharks, particularly up at Cape Carnage. But, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you should just go and kill those sharks. Shoot them, you know. Someone's going to die. You know, we've very much had the viewers' time go on. I've got to say, it's really my children that's brought this about because, you know, we all know those early heydays of go out and catch as many fish. We've all grown up in modern days fishery management era where we just actually have to have a respect for that how the wider ecosystem works and that's everything in it so in our case we're just harvesting mackerel but there's all these other species that uh, are out there too and some we interact with they might be the barracuda which we we put back over the side alive a tuna you know we have the highest respect and regard that and with the sharks 
particularly with Juanita's injury, said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go and kill those. Well, you can't. You know, in today's modern fishing industry, you have to have a high respect and say, you know what, they're a top-end predator. They were here well before me. Um, you know, we just have to learn to deal with the shark issue, which is an increasing issue. It's got to the point now where we have to leave certain areas, John. We're just losing, you know, 10 mackerel in a row, $2,000 worth of fish, so we've just got to pack up and move on. With the uncertainty of the wild catch fishing industry came a demand for the Davy family to consider how they could best use their unique knowledge and love of the Gulf of Carpentaria. A tourism venture was merely an extension of their enthusiasm for the region and their fish. We are the luckiest family alive. Look, six years ago, John, I took the very bold move. I did a, a major refit on the wild card here in Cairns over six months. We totally gutted the vessel. The vessel's 37 years old now. It was launched in 86. It's in pristine condition inside now, being our home. And our only home, you know, we've lived there a whole, uh, one and a whole old marriage and the kids. And um, I did a uh, big, so I put in nine toilets, 11 cabins, uh, big entertainment, you know, uh, commercial kitchen and galley. And we, um, we diversified out of solely reliant on the fishing industry into luxury cruising uh, discovery adventure in East Arnhem Land. Now, that has just taken off. In the last two years, we've been totally booked out. We're already booked out two years in advance. That's been very popular, though, for the February, March, April and the cyclone season. We do adventure discovery, cultural immersion, all the history of the uh, early Dutch and, and uh, Macassan explorers, etc. Captain uh, Matthew Flinders sailed through there several times. And we do weekly tours out of Gove, fly into Gove, out on the boat for a week, fine dining. We're natural entertainers. They learn about us, I'm saying, all the history of the Gulf, get to visit these beautiful islands, Archipelago, the Wessel Islands, the Bromby Islands, English Company Islands. And that has now take off, taken off to the point where we're doing that six months straight now. So we do four months of the mackerel straight into the tourism. And we're at sea for 10 months of the year. In fact, John, I've just done nearly an 11-month straight stint at sea in August. I was uh, on the wild card last year, mackerel fishing, and I did August, September, October in a dory, and then November, December, we did six exclusive fly fishing charters up to the west for permit, bluebone, bastard, barramundi, etc., and then over to Darwin for two months refit, December, January, we're back at Gove in February, and then we did five months straight. We did 16 charters in five months from February, March, April, May, June, right through to the start of our mackerel season this year in July. So a 10-month stint at sea other than nine days off for a fishing meeting there. Uh, and I've got to say, I think it's been one of my most pleasurable. I'm 64 now, and I'm doing my 48th consecutive season at sea in the Gulf of Carp Terror I've never missed a year. It just was definitely one of my most pleasurable times. To be there with your wife, your darling wife, Juanita, and your children, Tom and Jess and, 
and Jody and that and, uh, you know, taking people to your backyard. And it's really interesting to see these people. They join the wildcard family when they come out on a cruise, but they all seem to know of our heritage, our, our rich five, uh, four-generation heritage going back to Grandpa George. And uh, they're, they're just amazed. So you join the wildcard for a crew, you actually join the family and, I'm a bit of a natural entertainer, John. I just love talking to people, meeting people, because it's such a contrast from the mackerel. There's just Juanita, Tiger, Tom, Jess, Drew, JD, me on the boat. And then all of a sudden, come uh, June, uh, come uh, November, December, I've got eight other people living in my home, and I'm uh, cooking, cleaning, making their beds, cleaning their toilets, and entertaining them. It's uh, quite a contrast, John. Building a dynasty is no easy feat. Building an intergenerational fishing dynasty is becoming less and less common as the industry shrinks. The Davy family are a very special dynasty in the Australian seafood industry. I think we all get to our mid-60s and, and we think, wow, you know, my grandfather, my uncles, my cousins, uh, as I mentioned, all those wonderful, iconic uh, you know, generational fishing families, in this case New South Wales, the Pirellos, the Muslim Mishis, the Italians, the Greeks, you know. If, you, uh, if you're a kid like me delivering the fish with Dad up to the market or whatever and you'd always stop in at Kayama, these beautiful um, you know, fishing ports, uh, Wollongong, and they'd be all chatting with all the Italians and the Illawarra Star and all these beautiful old timber vessels, many long since gone. Um, I just love growing up, you know, surrounded by the smell of the fish, the smell of the trawlers. And I was saying, you know, the, the whole town would literally come down to the public wharf at Greenwell Point at four o'clock in the afternoon as all the trawlers that steam back in through the through the heads up to the wharf. The trucks would be waiting full of ice and everyone would be swinging boxes of John Dory and Latchet, Gurnard, Mowong or lobsters or school prawns or tragulin or tunerous and there'd be always something fascinating coming over the wharf onto the truck. And it was a real hive of activity and it was the centrepieces of those, uh, of those coastal communities now back then. And, uh, and of course, they were also the economic driver uh, of those communities back then. And you take somewhere like Cairns that uh, used to be one of the largest fishing ports in, in Australia 20 years ago. It's just shrunk down to a micronism of itself now. We've got poor infrastructure. Uh, the, the, the industry doesn't have a high regard. There's a lot of conflict with charter and recreational, etc. these days. That's unfortunate. Uh, the politics of fishing, John, is increasingly becoming a bit of a drain on one's mind as we sort of wade through what's best for the resource or who's going to utilise the resource. Oh, that's a challenge. Um, but uh, for us, I think we're, we're well established in the industry now because for my children to go and buy a wild card or build a wild card and then have to try and secure uh access through quota it's unaffordable to buy for most kids today and of course we've got the challenge of having to lease off uh, you know off, off dare i say it the quota barons or, or the speculators and investors it's increasingly becoming an issue and it's increasingly become an issue around the economics of what it costs to put a kilo of wildcard spanish mackerel 
on people's plate today, and that's rapidly increasing. Traditionally, fishermen are price takers. They ring the buyers up and say, what's mackerel today? And it's, oh, God, that's not very good. So, uh, yeah, there's two types of, you know, sustainability in this case, the seafood industry that I like to point out to managers, and that is obviously the resource sustainability. Are we renewing the resource back into the ecosystem so we can harvest, you know, 10%, 20% ethically, humanely, sustainably, uh, and then we know we can turn up next season and continue to catch our quota allocations. And then, of course, increasingly we've got the issue of economic sustainability, and that is if it costs $50,000 to go and fuel the wild card up, fuel, cartons, ice, insurance, pay the crew from the last trip, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, am I going to go out and catch $50,000 worth? Because if I'm only going to go and catch $40,000, I'm ten grand in the hole. Uh, that is globally under the current finance, uh, you know, the uh, increased cost increases, inflationary increases we're seeing. That's becoming a big issue. So for the likes of, say, the prawn trawlers in the Gulf of Carpentaria, competing with imported prawns, competing increasingly with large-scale, um, good-quality uh, prawns and, and other fishes now, the, is the economics of those businesses stacking up where they can substantiate the massive investments, millions of dollars? Well, we hope so because most would know the fishing industry gets no support, John. Now, the fishing industry is happy to stand on its own two feet with no subsidies, no assistance, no free kick from the government. It's sink or swim out here. And uh, that's why I think increasingly the, the, the industry in our case, particularly the mackerel, will come down to just several key players. It'll come down to several you know, investors increasingly buying up those quota holdings um, and we can just hope that we can continue to put our seafood on the plates of Australia at a price they can afford because uh, if they can't, John, they will find alternatives. They certainly will. Wildcard Davy and his family, fishing on the vast ocean in the extremely remote Gulf of Carpentaria, travel over 10,000 miles each fishing season, which is nearly halfway around the world, chasing their beloved Spanish mackerel. It's as much as a commitment to ensuring Australians have access to great Australian seafood as it is their passion. As a family enterprise who fish and live together, they are a truly special group of people. Check out their adventures on the YouTube series Lord of the Max to get a visual taste of what, where and how they do what they do. It's amazing. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast. A Deep in the Weeds production, I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Fishtales Seafood Podcast or email us at fishtalespodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.